Filming officers holds them accountable and it could even save lives. But I am very sympathetic to the argument that having people on top of these police officers could impede their work. But the thing is like, we all have to adjust to the 21st century. Like you can't exempt yourself from the conversation that everybody else is having as a society and try to create a carve out that violates our constitution. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, this week we have uh, our, another edition of our newsletter. I actually do a power ranking of 2024 Democratic contenders, you know, with all this news that Biden may not run and all the speculation about his age. And so it's a little bit trivial, but at the same time, I try to use the exercise to talk about what kind of qualities the electorate is looking for in their next leader. So make sure you go to Substack and subscribe. You just search The Lost Debate on Substack and it's completely free. With that, Corey, what do we have today? Well, on today's show, murder charges against a bodega worker here in New York have the city outraged. We'll unpack that whole case. Pro golfers are asking, can I live? And the PGA Tour says, not by a long shot. We'll get into that whole mess. And leaked audio from Steve Bannon sheds more damning light on President Trump's plans ahead of the 2020 election. But we begin with a controversial new law setting down limits for civilians recording cops on their cell phones. It is now illegal in Arizona to have your camera on an officer if you're within eight feet of them without their permission. Now, Ricky, can you give us a rundown of just what this law entails? Yeah. So like you said, um, there's an eight feet limit and you get one warning from the officer and then it becomes a misdemeanor if you don't comply. There are exceptions for if you're directly the subject of an interaction with the police officer, you can film yourself. And there's also an exception for car stops entirely. And so John Kavanaugh, who is the politician who backed this bill, was a former police officer for 20 years and he sponsored it. And he said, quote, it promotes everybody's safety, yet still allows people to reasonably videotape people as is their right. But then obviously there are a lot of critics who disagree with that, um, saying that it could potentially be a First Amendment violation and that there are different contexts, like, for example, a crowded protest where you might, if you want to even record a police officer, eight feet is not reasonable. And so there's a lot of contention around this bill, but that's kind of the basics. Yeah, it seems like a strange bill in the sense of it's just such a narrow situation. So it involves eight feet, right? And as you said, the person being arrested by and large can video it unless like the the act of taping it interferes with the arrest. So it kind of only applies to somebody who's within a feet of somebody else getting arrested in certain circumstances, but not including traffic stops like you talked about. But it raises all kinds of questions like what happens if an officer is approaching you and you're videoing them? Does that mean you have to back up? Does that mean you're resisting arrest or fleeing? Like, I think they need to answer some of these questions. They obviously also have to answer the First Amendment concerns. Many federal courts have looked at this over the last 25 years. The 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, 9th, and 11th District U.S. Courts of Appeals have all held in some way that filming police officers is protected First Amendment speech. It's not clear that this law is even going to withstand scrutiny. Yeah, it does get into a little bit of an entrapment possibility there. If you like you said, if you're filming a police officer and they're approaching you when, when you get within that eight feet, you're now breaking a law mm -hmm. and now you can't continue filming because you're breaking a law. But also, too, it's just a really complicated situation. Now, the fine for this, uh, it, it makes this a, a misdemeanor if, if someone keeps recording after they get a verbal warning from the police officer and the penalty could be up to five hundred dollars and even 30 days in jail. And the law goes into effect in September. But I'm of the belief that filming police officers 
officers hold them more accountable. I think there's a good faith and bad faith version of this story, right? There's in, in bad faith, there are police officers who are looking to escape any kind of scrutiny whatsoever. And those folks are obviously animated to try to you know, restrict filming as much as possible. There's also, I think, a world where there are good faith police officers who don't want people constantly getting in their face with cameras while they're trying to, uh, you know, go about their jobs. There's yeah. actually this, you know, David Simon, the guy who created The Wire, has this show on uh, HBO now called We Own the City. It's like a limited series. And there was this scene of just absolute chaos. And it's based on a real story, but obviously this scene is, you know, something they wrote where officers are are perpetrating or, or um, you know, trying to carry out an arrest. And there are just crowds of people with their cameras out. And it you can you kind of feel for both the officers and the people being arrested in this situation. Police yourself! What I find fascinating about this show and just I think police in general, if you just walk around Manhattan, is how much different it is than when I was growing up in the 90s. Like the NYPD blue, the kind of, you know, the, the officer who's kind of the, the king of their beat and super well-respected on the streets and is kind of the hero of the story when we put them on TV. And now, you know, there's shows like this. I mean, this is the most glaring example where there's just a different field of policing right now. And mm -hmm. I don't think this is a totally fictional take. Like if you, if you make your way around Manhattan, people have their phones out whenever mm -hmm. police officers are in any dicey situation. That's, that's a part of the reality now. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to your point about the, the depiction of cops in, 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 our, in our media, I think there's been an ebb and flow. I mean, you go back all the way to the 80s, there were shows like Hill Street Blues where cops were, you know, they were seen as heroes, but they were seen as very complicated figures who had to deal with a whole range of issues. Then fast forward to something like the 2000s where the shield was out. And I mean, they had cops looking really corrupt in that particular show. And, and I think like, you know, David Simon's works have always portrayed a very complex view of police officers where they're really, they're not necessarily the absolute heroes, they're not the absolute villains. What they're dealing with is crime, is violence, is murder and things like that. And so there's a lot of complexities to deal with that. And they sometimes have to bend the rules or at least they feel like they have to bend the rules. But I, I also believe, and I've seen several examples of this on TikTok actually, where someone was filming two police officers who, there was something I saw on TikTok recently where uh, these cops were talking to this individual and they had their gun on him. And then as soon as they noticed someone was filming them, they put their gun back. And there were a lot of people who saw that video and thought if that person wasn't filming them, who knows how far that situation could have escalated. Well, this is interesting because I mentioned how the federal courts have looked at this. The Supreme Court has declined to take on uh, this issue so far. And notably, they punted on a case by this man named Levi Frazier, who recorded cops battering a suspect and pushing a pregnant woman to the ground. And when the cops caught Frazier documenting the encounter, they confiscated his tablet and deleted the video. So this is obviously a nefarious example of this, and that's a bad faith example of this. Yeah, and I think there's definitely context though, where you could see how a lot of people like bringing chaos and screaming, getting really close to cops could be obstructing like an arrest and could potentially endanger the person being arrested if a cop is dealing with a million other things and like potentially could be more aggressive in result or, or just like can't concentrate. Um, but I wouldn't have a problem with a law that said if like it's if it's demonstrably clear that you're obstructing an arrest with the way that you're filming someone or if you're getting aggressively in the face of a police officer. But that should be like a case by case basis. And I think that as a whole, like increasing police accountability through filming, if it's even just like a mandating like a body cam on the police officers, yeah. that would be a more logical way that would hopefully absolve them of accusations of wrongdoing or in the worst case scenario, 
and like prove what everyone filming them is trying to prove. Yeah, I don't like this law because it focuses on the First Amendment right to film something. If it literally said yeah. you can't get within eight feet of a police officer who's making an arrest, that makes total sense. But it focuses on this concept of filming. However, I will say eight feet is such an arbitrary number. I mean, you could still technically by this law, you could still film them if you're nine feet or more out. And I know Mayor Adams here in New York <laughs> had something to say about getting close to cops while you're uh, while you're filming. If your iPhone can't catch that picture, would you be in a safe distance that you need to upgrade your iPhone? Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs. That is not acceptable and it won't be tolerated. That is a very dangerous environment you are creating when you're on top of that officer who has an understanding of what he's doing at the time, yelling police brutality, yelling at the officer. But once again, Corey, to your point, his point is about being on top of the officers. Yes. Yeah. So if the law was written about how far away you need to be when the officers are trying to go about their business and, and effectuate an arrest, I would be a little bit more sympathetic to that. And now you have to be careful though, because what does it mean to be within eight feet of what kind of activity? Because like if you walk around the streets of New York right now, it's almost impossible to walk down the street without being within eight feet of an officer. So at the point where I'm filming something else and the officer happens to be in it, am I breaking the law? So you have to be- Well, there's the warning provision. Like you have yeah, to be warned. That's a good point. And that's, I think that makes it fair because people, I mean, not that I agree with the, the law as a whole, but that is a provision that like here, this is a law and I'm going to tell you that first, don't do it again. Yeah, and there are other versions of this, right? So there are laws in Oklahoma and Florida that were passed that punish people for posting videos online that include officers' personal information. Now, I think this gets into a, a whole different territory. There, there's certain cases where it's anti-doxing, where they say you can't publish videos that include badge numbers, patrol car license plates, and other identifiable information. That's the Oklahoma law. Now, I still have an issue with that because like, the license plate number, like that's actually really important information if the officer is doing something improper versus the officer's name and address, that's yeah. different. Yeah. Florida, I think has a better law where it says that if you post online with the intent to harass the officer, so the intent being the key there, mm -hmm. that kicks in. I like that law a little bit better. But I think like the biggest question here that a lot of people are asking is like, who's asking for this? Mm -hmm. Why is this even a law that's on the books? And I think the simple answer is, the police unions want this. They, there's not like a really good public policy interest for this particular version of the law. I agree, Ricky, that there's there's a way you could write a law to make it much more easily um, implementable, withstand First Amendment scrutiny, and um, allow citizens and journalists, particularly, which is not a carve out here for journalists. Yeah, I mean, look, Filming officers holds them accountable and it could even save lives in some of the examples that I've given. But I am very sympathetic to the argument that Ricky gave about the fact that having people on top of these police officers could impede their work. Not to mention there are some police officers that simply don't want to be on camera while they're doing their work. I mean, I mean, if they're trying to restrain someone, it may look bad, but they may be restraining a person who actually committed a crime who right. needs to be restrained. And they don't want their face all over the Internet saying, oh, look at them being getting up on this guy. It's like, well, that person may have just killed someone. That person may have just done a really bad crime and they're trying to just do their job. I saw this in the summer of 2020 where there were people often in the streets yelling at police officers who were trying mm -hmm. to effectuate arrests mm -hmm. saying get off or that person. Or just like you know? standing there they would yeah. get harassed often in New York in like the depths of 2020. For yeah. sure. Yeah. But the thing is like we all have to adjust 
to the 21st century. Like there are parents who have to sit there while their kids are staring at their phones. There are teachers who have to deal with cell phones in uh, in school mm-hmm. buildings. And you have to find a balance, right? Like yeah. there's, there's the equivalent of schools of like, how do you restrict cell phone use within a school? This is the equivalent of policing. But you can't exempt yourself from the conversation that everybody else is having as a society and try to create a carve out that violates our constitution. Absolutely. Yes, I agree with that. So let's actually stay on the crime beat for a second here. Murder or self-defense? That is the question dividing officials here in New York right now. As the case of a bodega employee makes headlines around the country. Ricky, I know you've been keeping a very close track on this particular story. Bring us up to speed on just what happened here. So this starts with July 1st, around midnight. A um, 61-year-old bodega worker, uh, immigrant from the Dominican Republic, was working as a cashier. He didn't own the bodega. There's a lot of misinformation that he did. And a woman tried to get her 10-year-old daughter, her 10-year-old daughter tried to purchase a bag of chips with her electronic benefits card that got declined. And then the, the clerk did it like over and over and over. And she got really aggravated over the fact that he, she says that he took the chips back. There's a lot of video footage that's from the New York Post that um, does not show that moment, but shows the surrounding situation. And so she says then that her, her boyfriend is going to come and fuck him up. And then not long after, Austin Simon, 35 years old, has a long extensive criminal record. He was out on parole for assaulting a police officer at the time. So he comes bursting in, screaming and yelling at this guy looking for revenge for this 10-year-old. And so the the convenience store clerk says, Papa, I don't want no problem. He's like trying to dissuade the situation. And he comes up behind the counter, shoves him to the ground, this young man and this elderly man, shoves him to the ground, stands over him, tries to yank him like by his collar out from behind the convenience or like behind the counter and the guy grabs a knife that he was using to open boxes and stabs him and kills him and in the end he was arrested he was also stabbed four times himself by the girlfriend and the convenience store clerk was arrested charged with second degree murder and criminal possession um bragg's office are uh tried to hold him with manhattan district attorney um so bragg's office attempted to hold him on half a million dollar bail then dropped that down to two hundred and fifty thousand. he was held at rikers his stab wounds got infected because he only had hot water to clean them and now he's out on bail in the end but he has a july 20th court date to have to prove that this was in self-defense which is virtually indefensible to me that he would be held in this sort of context and the woman who stabbed the clerk after the fact was not charged is that correct not charged because bragg's office said that they felt that she was defending her boyfriend even though she lied apparently right initially after this incident she didn't stab him so to police yeah just to be clear she she threatened the clerk so there's like a question of like conspiracy to commit assault here Mm -hmm. saying that he's going to fuck you up Mm -hmm. She then stabbed him and then lied about it after the fact. She doesn't get charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this clerk, who's a 61-year-old immigrant from the DR with no criminal record, a father of three, is, you know, is sent to Rikers with wounds that are getting infected. I mean, to me, and, and people who are long-time listeners when all this, I was the literal first person to endorse Alvin Bragg, the district attorney of Manhattan, in this race. I prepped him for de- uh, debates. I was a comms person for him, long-time supporter of him. I like him as a human being. But I think this is, when we look back on his tenure, this may be the turning point in many yeah. ways of people's perceptions of him. And he has got to get these things right. This is an absurd result. 
Like anybody who watches these videos would see that this is a guy trying to do his job and was his physical safety was clearly threatened in this video. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it would be terrible enough if they just if they charged him and they charged this woman. Mm-hmm. But to charge him and not the woman, I think betrays a an absolutely distorted, weird view of who victims and perpetrators are. It's so odd because Bragg's whole thing has been we're going to be more lenient on people. We're going to not have to have them go through excessive bails and things like that. You would think that if anybody would need to receive the benefit of the doubt here, it would be this 61-year-old bodega worker who was simply trying to both defend his story and his life against this attack. And yet he is the one being charged with second-degree murder. He is the one being framed as this, this horrible person when literally he was literally just defending himself against an attack. And it doesn't make sense why Bragg wouldn't make an exception here. I mean, the fact that they're even charging him with second-degree murder is crazy in the first place. But the the fact that they wouldn't make an exception, they tried to give him half a million dollars bail. Like what? what is going on with, with Bragg's line of thinking here? One of his major things that he campaigned on was making sure that people weren't unnecessarily held on bail if they can't afford to pay it. And to say, to say this guy doesn't even own the bodega, so it's not even his chips to give to the girl. And like even you if can it parse was, that out. right? But even still, like this guy's working at midnight and in a bodega, like a half a million dollar bail is absolutely absurd i and then there's the entire other issue of charging him with criminal possession of a weapon which he was using a knife to open boxes is what he says if you look at the video the way he grabbed the knife it's not like he's packing the knife no like and you know like to me the intent here is really interesting too right like i'd be fascinated to see what bragg's office would argue if this got to court because you have the woman the girlfriend saying her intent is to have the boyfriend fuck him up and then he yeah. goes and fucks and him up. Does. So yeah. you're just like, like, there's no ambiguity about what no. was going on here. Yeah. And so like, let's play out the counterfactual here. Is Bragg now saying to New Yorkers that your your recourse in these situations is just to take a beating and let people steal all your things yeah. if you're a bodega worker? The idea that's a hardworking person doing their job, minding their business in our city is being prosecuted, is being put in Rikers while somebody who threatens and gets her, gets her boyfriend can just waltz away, stab this guy in the whole situation. And then in the end she says, oh, it's only over $3. Like, yeah. And she was the instigator of this yeah. situation. I'm not really as passionate about going for her as I am about how absurd it is, how like dystopian it is that you can't do your job and defend your ground in the most basic fundamental sense against someone who's twice your age and menacing and ag- extremely aggressive. Corey, you were with me when we uh, we talked to to Bragg a while ago. You were uh, back in the fall, right before he took office, and we asked him. Uh, I asked him about this. Gets to the Chase of Boudin stuff we've been talking about with San Francisco. I asked him like, "Well, you said that you're going to decriminalize uh, petty theft, which I think is up to a few hundred dollars of theft," and I was like, "Well." What's your plan for business owners who are trying to deal with this now and, and sell goods and make profit, all that? And people can go back and listen to it. Maybe we'll play a clip. It is, he didn't have a coherent answer to it. And I think this is a result of the lack of clarity on that combined with a bunch of other things is that people walk into stores and they think they own the fucking places because they're yeah. being told that they don't 
like they're not going to be prosecuted for stealing things. So when you have a bodega owner, let's pretend that he did grab those chips, yeah. right? People, they, there's no distinction between mine and yours in the city of yeah. New York yeah, anymore. anymore. Like I was in this this market the other day, um, the Mulberry Market, and just a guy walks in off the street, grabs a bunch of stuff, and leaves. And this is like the fifth time I've seen it in the I've same seen it place. So many you know? times recently, I saw a guy at CVS, the the employee, literally just punched the merchandise out of a guy who was stealing's hand because I can only imagine working your ass off at a minimum wage job and seeing someone just waltz in to legally steal as much money as you're going to make in an entire day. It's just such a perverse sense of like what is right and wrong. And we're incentivizing like this anarchy, essentially. It's insane. I wish my CVS would not lock every single item. Everything is locked up. (laughs) That's what's going on here. A lot of this (laughs) deals with the definition of of self-defense and whether or not this bodega worker was was defending himself. And New York penal law defines self-defense as it allows that a person may kill in self-defense if the actor reasonably believes that such other person is using or about to use deadly physical force. I think anybody could reasonably look at that and say that he could have been killed by that attack. The law also says that he or she reasonably believes that such a person is committing or attempted to commit a robbery, which obviously and is obviously possible. That's basically it's what it's behind the counter. Yeah. <laughs> so um, here's what, you know, this is a very uh, Eric Adams heavy episode. Let's hear what the mayor had to say about this. We have enough people who are there for people who break the law. I'm a person that's there for people who follow the law. And as I saw it from the video, I saw a worker here inside the store following the law and he should not have been approached in the manner that he was approached this is a tension that's playing out within democratic within the democratic party within liberals and progressives all across the country and often in these cities there aren't general elections that are competitive so the debate has to play out within the party and so you have this vision of london breed eric adams which is the chase of Boudins and the alvin breggs and you know for me at this point like i'm throwing in my lot with the london breeds and the eric adams of the world in this ideological debate because i believe that people have the right to sell goods and make money off of them and make Mm -hmm. a living they should feel safe on the streets that people's criminal records do matter and that also people like this this uh this clerk like a record being upstanding citizen also affords you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in a situation like this and the reverse is true if you're on the streets after having um you know assaulted a police officer and you have a long record like and there's a video that shows you assaulting somebody else those two things come together to say all right this this is relevant yeah and his treatment has just been absolutely disturbing in every single way even gofundme took down a campaign that his family was hosting to raise the money for bail and return twenty thousand dollars to donors which just feels so wrong but to give credit where it's now potentially do. Bragg um, met, I think, yesterday now um, with a bodega union leader. And behind closed doors, that leader says that there's a chance, or he said there was a chance that he might have the charges dropped. But it's pretty unclear to me why they're not. And they were able to negotiate down his bail to a $5,000 bond. So he's out right now, but he has an ankle monitor on. He can't leave the city. It's, I mean, it just feels really dystopian. But if you're trying to get in the head of Bragg, I think what he's worried about here is the consequences of his own decisions, right? I think when they're seeing like somebody 
taking matters into their own hands, which to be clear is not how I see this. But I think like this probably hit the DA's office and they're like, oh, this is vigilante justice, which is the biggest threat to brag because in a world where the police and the DA aren't enforcing basic rules about, you know, people's ownership of property, uh, then people are going to resort to vigilante justice. So I think they were worried about, oh, like if this comes out that this guy you know, defended himself in this way. Other bodega owners may do the same in other circumstances where people are stealing from them and all that. I, I, that is my guess as to what was going on yeah. here. But they need to hurry the fuck up and just drop these charges. Like this guy shouldn't have this hanging over his head. I mean, essentially, this situation proves that you're in this context, like kind of just allowed to commit a crime, but you're not allowed to defend yourself right. against one. Which, like, what kind of world is that? I'm all for progressive reform in our legal justice system, but it seems like with a lot of these progressive DAs, like Bragg, it seems to be a criminal's right first approach like their rights are are before the victims or before anyone else and that's just not going to work long term well moving on to some more drama here the pga tour says its new saudi rivals are using dirty money to buy the sport of golf offering massive payouts to big name golfers just to sign on to their new live golf tour let me be clear i am not naive if this is an arms race and if the only weapons here are dollar bills The PGA Tour can't compete. The PGA Tour, an American institution, can't compete with a foreign monarchy that is spending billions of dollars in an attempt to buy the game. PGA Tour is responding by suspending golfers who play in live tournaments, but Robbie, that move has them in hot water with the Justice Department. What what is going on here? This is as complicated a sports story as I've come across, I have to be clear, and and I also hate golf, so it's just like a really hard story to unwind. The you know, at issue here is the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is an extension of the Saudi government, uh, is bankrolling this new league. So the PGA Tour is, is threatened by this new Saudi effort. And there are a couple of key differences between the way the PGA Tour works and the way that the Live Series works. Number one is the number of holes. There are 54 holes in a tournament in Live, but 72 holes in a traditional tournament in the PGA Tour. I don't give a shit about golf, so neither does the Department of Justice. That's really not playing in here. It plays into how golfers perceive this, which we'll get to. But the big issue here is the money. This is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. They have a ton of money to pour into this. The purses from these these tournaments is a lot of money. Yeah. So, like, example is, like, the Masters, which is the most prestigious of, you know, domestic U.S. tournaments. Mm-hmm you know, the, the the winner gets $2.7 million last year. So that's a lot of money. But the winner of the first live event, we're not talking about the like a mega prestigious event. This is just the first of the events got $4 million. And even uh, the person who comes in last gets six figures. And so that's that's unique. And so they've, they've announced they're gonna uh, invest a lot of money in this, the Saudis did. So back in March, they announced that they had $250 million in funding for 2022. They announced that uh, their commissioner is going to be Greg Norman, who is a prominent golfer, uh, which, you know, he he has a lot to say and he's been their kind of public face of all of this. And then the PGA Tour has responded and basically has come down on golfers who are trying to participate in both the PGA Tour and the live events. And that's where the Justice Department has stepped in and saying, hey, this is possibly monopolistic behavior, which is something that Norman has accused the PGA Tour of doing. And so it, it's turning into a legal mess, not just a, a question of competition in sports. Yeah, well, Phil Mickelson is one of the probably one of the most recognizable names in golf, and he has signed a $200 million contract to play in the Live League. And they were offering some big bucks to a lot of the top 
players in golf, including Tiger Woods, but Tiger Woods turned him down. And I think a lot of people are saying that's because he, like many, feels that this live uh, tournament is going to interrupt the traditions that have been established for golf, at least in, in this country. And I think that that's very interesting because it seems like there's this, this kind of old school thinking about golf and this new school thinking about golf. And the new school is like, well, we don't make money if we don't qualify in a certain round when it comes to uh, these uh, traditional PGA tournaments. Whereas with Live, if, if you just participate, you're going to get something. And so I think some of the new golfers coming up are looking at this and saying, this is a better way for us to actually make a living playing the game of golf. I think of all people, it's easiest for Tiger Woods, of anyone, to take the moral high horse on this one. And while I agree that I, it's not an ideal situation, that it's Saudi money of all things that's funding this, like he already is set for life. He's exceptionally, like he's the probably the most famous golfer ever. I would imagine. And, you know, he doesn't need this money. He doesn't need these funds. And realistically, like this is the market working out. And I, while I don't love the optics of it all, I do think that there is some selective pearl clutching where Saudi money and also other corrupt money just pumps into so many of our institutions. And I'm not sure why going after these specific golfers in such a personal way is really that constructive. Well, Greg Norman had a lot to say about this. Let's roll a clip. Name me the last time somebody was willing to invest $2 billion into the game of golf. European tour was connected with the Saudis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Happy to take their money then, Yeah. right? For years and years and years. PGA tour in China, Uyghur issues. Happy to take their money, put it in their bank, no problem. I mean, he makes a good point, Ravi. Do you feel like the PGA Tour is just simply using this Saudi thing as the excuse because really this threatens them as a league more so than anything else? So are they just using the Saudi money thing as like, this is the thing we're going to use to get people against this? Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's hard to argue with what Norman is saying here. I mean, he said some bizarre things outside of those comments, uh, like, for instance, that the youth of Saudi Arabia are looking to change the culture and they're going to do it through golf, which, like, <laughs> okay. I'm not sure. That, <laughs> I'm not sure I think of the youth of anywhere changing any culture through golf. golf. <laughs> right, the last time I was, you know, it's not like you roll through golf courses and see a lot of teenagers. But I think you could think two things, right? You could believe that the U.S. in general, including key institutions, are too cozy with the Saudis. There's all sorts of terrible, nefarious ties between super wealthy, either sovereign wealth funds or companies that are tied to terrible regimes that are bad. But I'm not sure that the PGA Tour is wearing a, a white shirt on this. And uh, he's right to point out the hypocrisy. I wish what he was saying wasn't true about the PGA Tour, because then this would be a cleaner, easier argument. But then you also have the players, right? Like you talked about the the golfers. The, Corey, I think you mentioned the top 10 golfers have not participated in Live, who are some of the biggest names in golf. And, you know, like you said, Ricky, it could be because they already make their money. They have less of an incentive to do this. It could be because they have some like innate love of the game, but there's also some competitive equities in here. And I'm not going to go into the rules, but once you start playing in these live tournaments and you get banned from the PGA tour, your standing starts to suffer in the rankings. And once your standing in the rankings starts to suffer, then you can't attend some of these events like the masters. And that's where that's where I think some of the players are having a tension here between money, but then also the prestige of winning some of these big tournaments. And that's interesting in of itself. But then you think about the Masters, right? Like this is not like the club that the Masters has held it has had all sorts of issues with racism and sexism over time. So this gets to the hypocrisy elements of it. Like I think if we start to look at the the 
ethics of golf generally, you start to unearth all sorts of issues outside of this. There's also an interesting Donald Trump connection to all of this uh, because the PGA, you know, kind of cut ties with playing on Trump courses because of some of the things he was doing in the 2016 election, but then definitely after the January 6th incident in 2021. Uh, but the it's very interesting and noteworthy that two of Liv's tournaments are taking place on Trump courses, including the final championship that's going to be happening in Miami. So it seems like Trump has an interesting connection to to the Liv. Uh, also, too, you know, Trump has an interesting connection to the Saudis. So it's all kind of connected there. Well, here's the interesting question to put my tinfoil hat on if I had it within reaching distance is like you have Biden going to Saudi Arabia this week. You have him basically cozying up to the Saudis after having some pretty heated rhetoric against them on the campaign trail. We've t we've covered this before. I'm interested in, and I have no evidence, I would just want to ask this question if I was a reporter on the beat at the Department of Justice, that the Department of Justice interest in this case, is this tied to national security concerns? Like, is this some part of a negotiation with the Saudis over trying to get them to release more oil to be like, hey, we'll do your bidding on this. I have no evidence for this, but this is a question I would ask if I were on the beat in the Department of Justice, because there is a precedent for because the Department of Justice is involved in national security conversations. It is it is plausible that the National Security Council or the Department of Defense or State would ask the Department of Justice to look into this and then make that promise to the Saudis uh, ahead of a visit of Biden to Saudi Arabia. You could imagine that being the case. And so that's the sort of conspiracy that I would be wondering about. To me, the smallest fish to fry in terms of Saudi influence is golf i know that it's like a major <laughs> i know it's a major sport but like when you look at i, I mean Generous i went to a high school a yeah. <laughs> my Sorry, dad your my dad's gonna be mad at me. fuming Sorry. right now Sorry. um <laughs> but when like i went to a high school where saudi princes were educated at my boarding school we had buildings that were donated by saudi money um the department of education says between 1986 and 2021 colleges got 2.1 billion dollars from them wow. like it's that to me is more concerning and more interesting. And why are they involved in our institutions of higher learning versus a sport? The problem here, and we've talked about this before, is we don't have a bright line, right? What makes a government, you know, off limits to coordination? Like for some reason, we just don't have an issue with doing stuff with China, like no. LeBron James, Hollywood, et cetera. Like there's just this, and you know, Apple's entire supply chain, for example, we just don't really talk about those things. But the Saudis have a ton of problems, but it's hard to draw a bright line to be like, all right, the, the Saudis are some it's morally reprehensible in a, in a materially different way than the Chinese government is. Therefore, we won't work with the Saudis, but it's totally fine to work with the, the Chinese government. I've yet to find somebody who can explain the difference. There's also a line of when like important figures in our country get like essentially gag orders from these countries. Like there's right. Megyn Kelly had Mark Cuban on, on her show a while back and she cornered him on like he wouldn't verbally condemn the Uyghur genocide. Like oh, and so that. when yeah. when situations get to the point where we have like major figures in our country who can't say things because they're so directly in the pocket, I think that's where the concern is. And so I mean we can see what happens with this live tournament and if that becomes the same situation. But I think for me that's kind of where the line is. That's definitely problematic. Let's move on to something else that's really problematic. Leaked audio from Trump ally Steve Bannon is all but proving what many have suspected for some time 
time now. Long before the 2020 election, the former president had a plan to declare victory no matter what the outcome of the election was and to blame a potential loss on voter fraud. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. Also, if Trump is if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. Cause no, because no, he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm yeah, going to the court, uh, agree. I'm directing the attorney general mm-hmm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be mm-hmm. no. He's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, mm-hmm. Trump is going to do some crazy shit. Pretty much a lot of that happened, of course. Ravi, to hear it laid out by Bannon pretty casually, I might add, I mean, that brings a whole nother layer to everything we've said about this 2020 election and, and, and Trump's attempts to frame this voter fraud narrative. Yeah, I, I have a lot of people in my life who continue to say the election was stolen, and I want them to listen to this clip and say, well, one of the most prominent, you know, Bannon has over 200 million downloads on his podcast in Apple. He's one of the most popular podcasters out there. The former CEO of the Trump campaign, former chief advisor in the White House, receiver of a pardon from Trump, and a key participant in strategy meetings around how to react to the election in and around January 6th. This is a guy who is in the middle of it all saying before the election that no matter whether valid or not, Trump is going to declare victory. And there's all sorts of stuff in this clip that are concerning, including like authoritarian tendencies after the election and what and what Trump's going to do. So much of what he said played out exactly as he described it, which is why I find this uh, newsworthy. But like, we got to remember, this is a guy who got a pardon from Trump. And the Washington Post uh, reported a few days ago that that pardon was tied to uh, Trump's perception of Bannon doing his bidding in the public square about the election lies. So this is directly tied to this. There was also reporting from uh, Woodward that uh, Bannon was a key strategist for Trump in the times around the election, including convincing Trump to come back from Mar-a-Lago on January 6th itself. Uh, that was reported by Woodward. So, like, to me, this is a guy right in the middle of it. He's had senior roles within the administration. He's saying the quiet part out loud. That's why I find this noteworthy. Obviously, it also comes in the context of which he's being, uh, you know, the January 6th committee trying to compel him to testify, and he's facing charges of contempt. Well, I hate to say this, but sadly, none of this is surprising. And it really just reaffirms something we've kind of always known about Trump. I think even back in 2016, there were rumors that if he lost to Hillary, that he wouldn't concede. And I and I think that was that just followed into 2020. We all we've always known that that Trump doesn't back down. You know, Trump, one of the people who advised him and kind of made him into who he is, is a lawyer named Roy Cohn. And he once told Trump, you know, never admit defeat, never admit defeat, never say you're sorry, never back down from a fight. And Trump has pretty much lived his life like that ever since. And so this doesn't really surprise me, but it's very disheartening for our democracy. Um, As a whole, I mean, I agree that this isn't really necessarily new news. It's just a new version of the same thing that we've kind of known. And for me, what was the most disturbing was the implication that he could become more authoritarian. Here's the thing. After that, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's gonna fire Ray, the FBI director, fire the scene. gonna say, fuck you, how about that? Because he's never gonna, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's gonna be off the chain, he's gonna be crazy. That, to me, is actually probably like the newest, most directly expressed sort of sentiment in that sense. Right. Versus the other stuff, I, I mean, I kind of feel like that, like it's, unfortunate it's not defensible at all it's it's terrible for our democracy but it is unfortunately stuff that we did not yeah it's just another layer right this is just all saying like to use the the metaphor from the bodega it's the equivalent of her saying i'm gonna come come back and get my boyfriend to kick your ass like it's just adding another layer of conspiracy to be like 
all right, like we all saw the videos of January 6th. We've all been watching these committee hearings. This is just a senior person with direct ties to Trump, both because of his positions, but also because Trump went out of his way to pardon this guy. And in this guy is saying this out loud, he, you know, the context here is important. He refused to testify in front of the January 6th committee. And we could see why now. <laughs> and now uh, he faces a federal trial, which is set to start any day now. And he tried to claim executive privilege uh, in order to get out of uh, testifying, which is interesting because he wasn't in federal government during January 6th, nor is he in federal government now. And so uh, the judge, which was a Trump appointed judge, threw out that claim of executive privilege and other uh, claims that Bannon was making. He said like the January 6th committee hearings would provide a distraction for his trial, et cetera. Meanwhile, he's only been mentioned 30 seconds uh, during the committee hearings so far. So it's hard to imagine that some kind of unique distraction is occurring from these hearings. Well, clearly this kind of shows there's a premeditated nature to what Trump was gonna do here. But I would say from a legal standpoint, when Bannon is talking here, he doesn't actually say, me and Trump talked about this. Me and Trump planned this. Mm -hmm. This is how it's going to go. It's, someone could argue, if they play devil's advocate, someone could argue that he's just guessing what Trump would do based off of his time with him, based off of his interactions with him. He's just saying, oh, Trump's going to do crazy shit if, 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 if he loses this election. But as far as like, does that constitute, this is a plan that Trump had from the get-go. Yeah. Legally, can that be used in like courts? To I don't really, think this to is going to be that. the nail in the coffin, this clip, because he wasn't on his staff at that point in time and he's talking to donors. So like potentially you could make the hypothesis that like, oh, he's just like hamming it up to get them excited about the election and their money's going to the right thing no matter what. But I think regardless, there's just a body of other evidence that will kind of support that in the end, so. Well, here's where I think this is relevant is, first of all, there's the the court of public opinion and then there's the, the legal liability here. In the court of public opinion, I think it's pretty damning for all the reasons yeah, I described, yeah. but legally, where this gets interesting, and the reason why he needs to testify under oath is because that's what I would want to ask him, right? Like Woodward seems to yeah. believe that Bannon was coordinating with Trump in certain key times throughout this. Bannon has overstated. This is what happens sometimes when people's egos are so big. It's like he started. He's he's either over or properly stated his level of coordination with Trump, and when asked about it by the Atlantic, really couldn't say definitively whether he's been talking to Trump or not during these key periods of time, and basically left himself a little bit of wiggle room. This is why I would want him under oath, is we could ask the question, like, how mm -hmm. much did you know? Certainly, he was coordinating with Trump in the period after the election. We'd want to know before. But to me, there's still legal liability after the election. If you're conspiring to overturn an election, there were key meetings in the White House that although there weren't the exact thing he was saying about what the Department of Justice would do, the revelations this week from the January 6th committee were that uh, there was a key meeting with high level staff, including Trump's lawyer, where they were talking about seizing voting machines around the country. So these are the type of things that are very directly linked to the things that he was floating. And so I would wanna know what his connection is. Very troubling information. And I think if it is true, that Trump planned this in, in such a nefarious way, it's really more of a reason why he just doesn't belong anywhere near the White House ever again. And I think that more than anything, this, like, like Ricky was saying about the things that Bannon was saying about how authoritarian he could become after, you know, if he were able to like make that successful and actually win that election, or at least make it look like he won't won that election, how authoritarian he would be if he was able to remain in office, that should be a real big warning sign for 2024. Because there are reports now coming out that Trump is going to announce his run for 2024 as a 
early as September, which would be very unusual. Most people would never, you know, announce those runs before the midterms like that. It could also really backfire if the Republicans don't do well in the midterms. And uh, so this is really a definite warning sign for 2020. Yeah, it's like a Berlusconi-esque like attempt to get, you know, shield yourself from the legal consequences and try to, you know, there's actually no like real protection for being a candidate for office, but once you're in office, there are certain privileges that exist. It's tricky though. I'm not sure that this, that him announcing is going to shield him legally, although it'll give him a huge political weapon. He would say, all right, you're coming down on me because I am running. It would also give him an opportunity to probably use campaign funds and raise money for his legal defense, which he's kind of doing anyway. anyway. So yeah. The election defense fund. <laughs> well, we want to thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. Bye.